Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today for our webinar from the Insight Programme, second in the series. Uh, the Insight Programme has been looking at some of the fundamental science questions needed to understand the influence and the value of structures in our marine environment over the last 10 years. My name is Henk van Rijn. I'm on the Insight Programme Director team, and I'm going to introduce the webinar today. What we've been doing in the Insight Programme over the last few months, and we'll continue doing over the next 12 months almost exactly, is to work closely with policymakers to identify where Insight Science can support their work. Insight is coming to the end of its second phase. Many of you who will be familiar with the programme, it's worth saying that when Insight was set up, it was the first real joint industry partnership of its kind in the UK marine research. And its aim has always been to provide stakeholders with independent scientific evidence to better understand the influence of man-made structures on the ecosystem of the North Sea. We're looking at topics as broad ranging as foraging by marine predators, testing the limits of the UK autonomous fleet, understanding fish aggregation, blue carbon benefits, uh, developing AI to speed up the understanding of biodiversity associated with marine structures and investigating the effects and implications of subsea plastics incorporated into marine structures. The focus of the webinar today is to share insights from projects across the program on environmental restoration and net gain considerations that are associated with structures in the marine environment. So to, to clarify what we mean by environmental restoration, we can define this as a process of promoting the recovery of an ecosystem from a degraded state. It can deliver for ecosystems, habitats and species, or it can prioritize outcomes for each individually. Environmental or ecological restoration can also improve the condition of habitats, expand their size and connect them with other habitat patches. And from the latest government consultation on net gain, net gain can be defined as an approach to development that aims to leave the natural environment in a measurably better state than beforehand. This means protecting, restoring or creating environmental features that are of greater ecological value to wildlife, habitats and people than any losses associated with the original project. So to start us off and to introduce the topic, we're very fortunate to have Charlotte Johnson from Natural England provide us with some background to marine net gain and evidence that Natural England are working on to support DEFRA in their development of marine net gain policy. This is for consideration alongside the research findings from the INSIGHT projects. Then we will hear from three of our INSIGHT investigators. First to talk will be Professor Joanne Porter from Harriet Watt University, then Dr. Stephen Watson from Plymouth Marine Laboratory, and then Professor David Patterson from the University of St. Andrews. Finally, I will host a short question and answer session towards the end of the webinar. I will now move on to our first speaker, that's Charlotte Johnson. Good morning, Hank. Good morning, Good morning. everyone. Okay, uh, thank you very much um, for having me to speak today. So I'm Charlotte Johnson. I work at Natural England and I'm a marine senior specialist there leading on our marine net gain work. This is a quite a new area for, for Natural England in terms of um, marine net gain specifically. Um, we're a very small team. There's just, just four of us. Um, I have oversight from uh, a principal specialist of Chris McMullen and I work alongside Eddie Mayhew and Emma Jane Bagnall who's, who's new to the team so there's just the four of us um, developing this work area at the moment. As Hank's already kind of mentioned um, net gain is an approach which aims to leave the natural environment in a measurably better state than beforehand. This is a policy that's been developed 
uh, terrestrially to start with. So their biodiversity net gain um, policy, which will be mandatory from November this year, applies down to mean low water. So includes those, those intertidal habitats. And we've been looking across to that policy, also through to marine, to understand what we could do in the same way to leave the environment in a measurably better condition. This just highlights that is that net gain. So you've kind of got rid of all your residual impacts to no net loss. And then that net gain is that additional benefit on the top of that. Hank mentioned that DEFRA consulted on high level aims and principles of marine net gain last year, and they've provided a summary of these responses, which you can find on their website, and they will be providing a response to the consultation um, this year as well. The driving force behind the development of this policy, as we understand it, are the British Energy Security Strategy, marine spatial prioritisation, the, the development of uh, offshore wind and greater kind of blue green development in our marine environment, 25 year environment plan. All of these policies and, and strategies give that impetus to, to develop this marine net gain to, in order to leave our environment in a better, better state than we found it after development. So what are we doing in Natural England to help DEFRA, kind of provide DEFRA with evidence and advice on this, this policy? We've got a number of projects that are ongoing um, and some that have delivered already. The ones that have delivered already, we have a report looking at how we define irreplaceable marine habitats. So these would be habitats that we really would want to strongly advise that development didn't occur on because if they're irreplaceable, you can't kind of restore them or recover them or enhance them. Um, so that project, I can provide links to these projects um, at the end of the call if, if required. That project has just completed and been published. And we also we commissioned a report looking at assisted versus natural recovery. So understanding where it's better to actively intervene and try and restore habitats and where it's better to just stand back, remove precious and allow the habitat to recover. Two other projects that are still ongoing are uh, my colleague Eddie Mayhew is leading a project looking at exploring metrics to measure losses and gains in the marine environment in in terms of understanding how we could measure those gains uh, for, for marine net gain. And then finally is uh, MARIPO, which stands for Marine Restoration Potential. So we looked at the where we could potentially restore marine habitats that we knew were threatened and declining using the OSPAR threatened and declining list of habitats. It links through to the Environment Agency-led project Rememory, if you've heard of that one, and is a, a joint project led by Natural England uh, with funding from Natural England and also um, the Crown Estates OEC programme. And it brings together Natural England, the Environment Agency, JNC and CFAS, who all delivered parts of this project. Um, and we looked at the restoration potential of merle, modiolus, sea pens, kelp and offshore oysters as well. This project is currently being reviewed at the moment and hopefully should be published in the coming months. Yeah, thank you very much for your for your time. If anyone has any questions, please feel free to ask. There we go. Thank you, Charlotte, for what's the stop tour there of <laughs> some of the work in Natural England and that that is going on to to advise and influence the development of policies in this area. It's really interesting and good to know about that. What we'll do now is move on to to the first of our insight speakers, uh, Professor Joanne Porter from Harriet Watt, who's going to talk to us a little bit about environmental restoration work coming out of the insight program. Thank you, Hank. So I'm going to talk this morning briefly about the work we've been doing in the Chassans project in relation to environmental restoration, ecological enhancement aspects. As you know, the aim of the INSIGHT programme is to enhance understanding of the connectivity 
of hard substrate epifaunal populations across artificial substrata in the North Sea. The particular relevance of Chassans is to Insights Challenge number one, which is looking at the role of man-made structures as an interconnected hard substrate network. Just to dive straight in, the part of the work that we've been doing more recently that's very relevant to this agenda of restoration and ecological enhancement is the connectivity analysis that's been undertaken by colleagues Michaela de Dominicis and Ben Barton at the National Oceanography Centre in Liverpool. Michaela and Ben have been developing particle tracking models for the central part of the North Sea and releasing particles um, around about the area of Orkney, Pentland Firth and the sort of north of Scotland and then tracking to see what happens to these particles over a series of months with trials going on for 90 days of, uh, of dispersal. And we've been drilling down into this in detail to try and un understand both um, spatial patterns and temporal patterns. And in terms of the spatial findings that are starting to emerge now, we're starting to understand from that areas of sinks and areas of sources. And in terms of temporal variability, we're starting to understand what's happening at different times of the year. And some of the findings that have more recently been coming out from the work is that coastal sites have better connectivity during the winter months, whereas the offshore sites that we're studying have a, a, a possibility to connect sporadically all the year with each other. And we're finding that coastal sites connect with offshore sites better during the summer months. And this was an example year where the model parameters were taken from a 2017 data. So how is this kind of work that we're doing useful for helping to inform uh, oil and gas uh, decommissioning and offshore wind infrastructure development in relation to restoration and enhancement. As you know, at the moment, the requirement in the North Sea is for full removal of old infrastructure. And this has already started to happen. An example here is the Guider Field in Norway, which was closed in 2020, where rigs were removed for dismantling and recycling of the steel. But there are other options, as we are aware, and there's been a really nice review published in 2019 about the options, a review of practices and reefing options. But what about the additional enhancement opportunities that could have good potential? And um, some of the material that gets left behind when we do a decommissioning operation, for example, things like shell mounds, um, is, are the possibilities for additional enhancements as part of this decommissioning process and obviously the commissioning of new infrastructure process as well. So let's just think for a moment about the sequence of marine restoration and enhancement. First of all, we need to prevent the activities and then we move into a phase where we're actually removing pressures that have been applied to that environment, that location. And then we've got the option of a type A eco-engineering 
perhaps also using geoengineering. So this could be a scenario where you create habitat and environmental conditions and the species come back. Or you could have type B ecoengineering, where you have to give a helping hand by restocking, replanting or reseeding. What we do know is this sequence works better in the inshore and estuarine areas than in the open sea. We know that ecoengineering is challenging at sea due to the difficulty of manipulating ecosystems. However, capping with new different sediment types or modules could potentially be workable. But there are advantages of each of the different options that we should consider quite carefully um, in the context of restoration and ecological enhancement. And one case example I wanted to bring to your attention was the work by Maya Gutbrod et al. 2019. And they looked at the de decommissioning impacts on biotic assemblages with shell mounds beneath Southern California offshore oil and gas platforms. And quite a lot of detailed information was gathered around the uh, biomass density, species composition and similarity at 22 Southern California platforms. And these results are now being used to inform a comprehensive net environmental benefit analysis of Southern California offshore platform decommissioning alternatives. So looking at some wider considerations, there are costs to including um, ecological enhancement, but there could be reductions of decommissioning costs if all materials don't have to be removed at the decommissioning stage. Also worth considering that the supply chain for ecological enhancement would need to be scaled up. Experienced offshore workers and aquaculture jobs would be needed to support this type of work. Also, I don't think it's fully understood at the moment, the carbon footprints of the decommissioning process and the ecological enhancement process. How do these things compare? But there are some interesting linkages as well. Uh, refuge areas of diversity can provide connectivity between fragmented habitats, and this can better support the Marine Protected Area Network, for example. And there's been a recent paper published by Mackenzie et al. in 2022 uh, talking about these aspects, which might be of interest to the audience here. And it's also interesting to note that there's developments in the aquaculture side for some of the species that might be used for the enhancement, making that more possible now than perhaps it has been previously. What we do need to see is authentic corporate social responsibility. And several of these aspects are also raised in a new paper that's due to be published in June 2023, which is a offshore decommissioning horizon scan. And this talks about the research priorities that are needed to support decision-making activities for what happens with oil and gas infrastructure. And this is now available as a preprint. So just coming back to the work we've been doing in the Chassans project, what we are able to do is predict by particle tracking the movement of larvae from sources to sink areas in the central North Sea. We're also uh, testing this in situ with settlement panel experiments and genetic analysis. 
information exists regarding locations of infrastructure that's due to be decommissioned and forecasting is being used to predict where new infrastructure is likely to be deployed. And the nice thing about all this is that we can combine these information streams to help inform about the likely success of restoration or enhancement across the central North Sea area and the impact of new deployments. And this type of approach could be used in future to assess other parts of the North Sea, other regions. Just coming back briefly to touch on the potential policy linkages, Charlotte's already spoken about the biodiversity net gain. There's also the MMO strategic plan, and that talks about restoring well-functioning ecosystems, what ecosystems are needed, where are they needed, can and should they be co-located, how long does it take for them to become established and functioning. And as I mentioned briefly, there's also the Marine Protected Area Network connectivity enhancement. So concluding thoughts, what ecosystem services and functions do we want the North Sea to have in coming years? There are options to enhance carbon sequestration, uh, biodiversity and nursery site services at actual decommissioning sites. Uh, would need to be scoped out. And we're starting to see some evidence coming through biodiversity gain. And it was really useful to see those different projects highlighted by Charlotte. So just to finish, I wanted to say, you know, there's an option, I think, here, an opportunity for some decommissioning demonstration enhancement projects. And it will be interesting to discuss where these could be located and who would be interested partners for driving forward these kind of projects. And I'll finish there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Joe. We move on to our next our next speaker, please. Hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Dr. Stephen Watson from Plymouth Marine Lab. Uh, I'm going to talk today about some thoughts around environmental net gain, ecosystem services and policy. I'm going to be talking from two different projects which I'm working on in my capacity as an ecosystem service scientist. Uh, I'll be mainly talking about the DREAMS project and the Insight Synthesis projects, which are collaborations between PML, the University of Plymouth and CFAS. Just to introduce you a little bit to the project's DREAMS, which stands for the Decommissioning Effects of Alternative, Ma Alternative Management uh, Structures. So in DREAMS, we're going through and asking what does the scientific literature tell us around different decommissioning options using various um, evidence synthesis-based approaches. Whereas in the Insight Synthesis Project, we're taking a slightly different approach where we're asking what scientists think about um, the effects of structures what effect will these structures have at the end of their lives? So they're two very kind of different projects. I also want to talk in this talk a little bit about a third project called UKIRK, uh, where I'm currently the deputy co-director, where this time, rather than asking scientists, we're actually asking developers, stakeholders, and arm's length bodies what they think about um, offshore structures and what to do with them at the end of their life. So the thrust of my talk today is, can we build some consensus between these three different approaches, um, specifically relating to um, restoration, environmental net gain and ecosystem services? Um, so we heard at the start from Charlotte a little bit about um, net gain, but I just wanted to go back and talk a little bit about why environmental net gain in particular is important. Currently, the UK is pushing for biodiversity net gain, but it's 
um, equally important that we begin to think about the wider benefits that might come from biodiversity. The DEFRA consultation, which was mentioned earlier, highlights that we should be thinking a bit further about how we should be including things like natural capital ecosystem services. Um, so there really is a need, I think, to, to go beyond biodiversity net gain and start thinking about things like how carbon capture storage, climate change, health and well-being may be integrated into biodiversity net gain. So this is just the aims and objectives of the three different projects. I put a little blue banner so you can see about which project I'm talking about. I'm mainly going to give you some highlights um, from each of them, starting with dreams. I'm going to talk a little bit about the systematic map that we developed, um, specifically around the ecosystem service impact. I'm then going to talk about the two different workshops which we've had with scientists and stakeholders um, and give you some overall key messages about what they think. Um, so starting with the DREAMS project, we've now published a systematic map protocol and a, a fully developed systematic map. This is for various structures, including offshore wind, oil and gas, tidal wave, artificial reefs and shipwrecks. So as a team, we went through and we sifted through around 2,000 odd different um, records from the published literature, which we then honed down to just under 1,000 articles um, relating to offshore um, structures impact on ecosystem services. Uh, and this is now being used by various um, different aspects of the DREAMS project. Um, but more recently, we've also translated these um, databases into ecosystem service effects, which is quite novel. Um, I don't have time here to go and explain fully about how we did that, but this graphic just gives you a kind of overall example about what the database tells us in terms of how offshore wind structures in particular affect ecosystem services. And we broke it down into around 20 different ecosystem services, ranging from aquaculture um, all the way down to things like heritage, cultural services, and also biodiversity and habitat services, which can also be classed as supporting services. So if we, are, if we do want to implement environmental net gain policies, we really need to do some more primary kind of evidence to identify these different data gaps. This work is under review, um, but we'll hopefully be coming up with some more messages soon. We also went into the database and this time looked at the different decommissioning options within the database. Unfortunately, there wasn't that many around offshore wind, but we could get some um, take-home messages from oil and gas, artificial reefs and shipwrecks. And the main message is that full removal was generally considered to be negative for a wide range of different ecosystem services, whereas removing part and adding protective structures seemed to be the, the most positive take for several different ecosystem services and we also looked at um, a range of supporting services which are not often included in ecosystem service frameworks uh, and again there was kind of mixed but the overall message was that there was kind of no impact or a kind of degraded um, impact based on various decommissioning options we're still working this up but it's our message um, so moving on to the insight synthesis project this time we did um, a series of workshops where we invited 40 different scientists across the INSIGHT program, mainly from um, the areas of the UK, Europe, Australia uh, and the USA, where much of the work has been done around offshore structures. This time we asked them what scientists think about um, how we should restore and implement net gain actions. Um, and it's important to note that the statements that I'm about to show you are backed up by quantitative evidence. Um, so they're not just a series of statements. These were agreed by 40 different scientists from across the world. First, we asked them about how different decommissioning options would move us towards our strategic objectives, which we heard from Joe 
Um, currently, we have to remove all structures from the, the marine environment, but we wanted to better understand how um, we could move different policy objectives. What, what would be the outcome if we were to, to do these different policy objectives? So relating to five and six, um, so most of, most of the, the policy objectives were um, red. So scientists generally thought that various different decommissioning options were um, going to move us away from all sparse strategic objectives. But in terms of environmental net gain objectives, so um, objective five and six about restoring ecosystem services and habitats, we actually find that um, scientists were generally much more positive. So they, they thought that we could maybe enhance, so there might be an enhancement effect of um, leaving structures in place in the environment. Um, although total removal was the least, um, scientists thought that would strongly move us away from these policy objectives, whereas abandonment of all was generally considered to be the highest or most beneficial. Um, and if we look at um, preventing habitat loss, which has relevance to environmental net gain, um, scientists generally thought that this would take us towards that policy objective. This time we asked them about um, life below water, so the um, STG strategic objectives. Um, and if we look at the, the objectives specifically relating to environmental net gain targets, such as protecting and restoring ecosystems and increasing economic benefits, we again find that scientists generally had a quite positive overview that different decommissioning options would move us towards um, these targets. Although again, um, total removal and repurpose in place were generally thought to be fairly negative. Um, so the final set of workshops we did, this time asking um, what developers and stakeholders thought around environmental net gain and ecosystem services. Um, we took a much smaller approach this time, rather than a global approach, we, we were more interested in um, the UK's position on environmental net gain. So we had fewer numbers of stakeholders, um, but you can see from the middle of the screen, the kind of variety of different people we had at these workshops. Um, they were made up mainly of different stakeholders, policymakers, and arms length bodies. Um, and we had a follow-up survey in 2020 to increase the stakeholder numbers onto around, I think it was around 30. Um, and rather than asking questions around decommissioning, this time we were specifically interested in what they thought we should be doing in terms of prioritizing ecosystem services and restoration actions. Because it's all well and good, um, the ecology and the literature telling us what to do, but we also need to have perspective from people on the ground who actually have to implement these policies. Um, so I've just pulled out some of the key messages, mainly around offshore wind farms, because that was considered to be one of the most important areas from the stakeholders. Um, here we asked them which ecosystem services, conceptual or operational, should be further developed in order to better estimate environmental net gain impacts. Um, and from the yellow, the light blue and the green, you can see that um, stakeholders were generally favourable. They wanted to include as many ecosystem services really as we could in the delivery of environmental net gain. They mainly considered things like fisheries, nurse supporting nursery habitats, um, co-location with aquaculture, and also blue carbon to be some of the most important ecosystem services. Um, and they were mainly concerned or interested in provisioning and uh, supporting services. They seem to be less um, clear or less um, incentivized for things like cultural services and regulating services. So things like how offshore wind farms um, impact sediment flows, how they may impact view sheds and um, remediate wastes. 
And this uncertainty may be due to the fact that these services are quite hard to get a handle on or measure in any kind of quantitative way. We also asked them this time about um, if they could have certain restoration actions in the marine environment around offshore wind farms, what would they rank as the most important? And again, shellfish and mussel beds, co-locating them near offshore wind farms came out on top. But we also had some surprising results that they were interested in things like plankton and zooplankton, which are also not often considered in environmental net gain or biodiversity strategies. So that was quite an interesting find. Um, and you can go down the list. And this particular group considered that bats and birds and marine mammals were quite well covered in terms of delivering environmental and biodiversity net gain. Not to say they're not important, just in this group, they felt that there was other areas of opportunity that we could take when developing things like metrics for environmental net gain. Um, so in summary, the evidence synthesis from the DREAMS Insight project so far has highlighted there's, there's a very large number of gaps specifically relating to man-made structure and ecosystem services. We find over 197 um, specific evidence data gaps that we need to be researched further um, if we are to start thinking about how we implement environmental net gain, specifically around offshore wind farms, which are increasing rapidly. Um, in terms of what the scientists think, um, total removal of um, various structures was often considered the least favourable option, both for biodiversity and for ecosystem services. And this was also backed up by the evidence, uh, this, what scientists thought. So both the evidence synthesis and the scientists came up with the same kind of opinions. Um, scientists also believed that regionally, complete removal of all man-made structures was the least likely to achieve OSPAR and SDG strategic objectives which maybe means that we need to start rethinking about how we remove structures from the marine environment. And finally, from the developers and stakeholders, consideration of fisheries and aquaculture was consistently high priority when implementing environmental net gain and provisioning services in particular seemed to be very important. Um, a clear message from the developers and stakeholders is that we need um, to consider environmental net gain in metrics, um, particularly alongside natural English biodiversity metric, um, and that we need to start thinking about how we assign values for ecosystem services and economic impact as well. Um, and there's various metrics and tools that are currently being developed around environmental net gain, but I quickly just wanted to highlight one that we're developing specifically as part of the DREAMS and UKIRK projects called ORIES, which will be looking at how offshore wind farms in particular impact on ecosystem services. And this will be building on a lot of the evidence synthesis work that was done in DREAMS and also probably implementing some of the insight synthesis work as well. So we're kind of at the stage with uh, prototype stage with that, um, but we're hoping by October this year, we'll come up with a working tool that um, anyone who's interested, stakeholders, developers, or um, anyone can, can use. So I'll stop there. But if anyone's interested, please get in touch. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. That was, that was really, really interesting. Um, we sort of got a good, a good, a good flavor of, of the evidence in this area, but worryingly, you've stressed that there are a lot of gaps there. If I move on now to our next speaker, um, Professor David Patterson from University of St Andrews. Okay, thanks very much, Hank. And so I'm actually talking today about the Viewcoms project, which is run by Natalie Hicks down at Essex University. And a little bit also about more broad concepts in terms of offshore structures in the marine environment. The FUCOMS project is very much about the impact of those structures, 
but also thinking about the future and how we can think about the best way of addressing net gain. Um, if you actually look into the ecology of these systems, then actually they do develop an ecology quite rapidly and any material that we put into the marine environment does become colonized pretty quickly, first by organic layers, then by the settlement of bacteria and then larvae, and then developing into quite complex three-dimensional systems. And there's a reasonable amount of study on that, varying across the world from the, the Gulf of Mexico to the North Sea. And of course, all of those systems are contextually dependent, but they definitely have an ecology and they definitely have a role especially in the localised marine environment. And people who study them show the diversity and the functionality of those systems is quite different from the surrounding habitat. But in terms of the FUICOMS project, we're looking at the bigger impacts of those structures on the surrounding habitats. And that includes data analysis that exists from data that has already been collected using statistical modeling. But today I'm concentrating mainly on the fieldwork and lab analysis. Since we're able to collect new data uh, through uh, sampling campaigns and bring material back for mesocosm studies. So the fieldwork and analysis has been conducted around the Northwest Hutton and Miller platforms. And there are contextual differences between those as well. Northwest Hutton the, was completed in terms of decommissioning in 2009 and has a 45 metre span above the seabed in place, whereas Miller was um, finished relatively more recently in 2018 and only has uh, 20 metres of material above the seabed. So already there are contextual differences between those decommissioning programmes. In terms of looking at the impacts of those areas, since that decommissioning, we're looking at biodiversity across a, a wide sweep of organisms from the microbial, molecular to macrofauna. And we're fortunate to be able to um, fund some PhD students from this work as well, looking at eDNA and blue carbon, along with uh, heavy metals, nutrients, etc. So quite a, an extensive sampling campaign. In terms of the results, they're coming in rapidly and uh, we already have molecular analysis that's available showing that there are differences in community function with distance from the sites. And these are just looking at the relative abundance of different functional bacterial assemblages as you increase the distance from the decommissioned platform, Miller on the left and Northwest Hutton on the right, particularly in terms of the functional attributes, such as the decrease in sulfate reducers as you move away from the platform and increase in nitrogen cycling species with increasing distance. So there's this change in balance of the assemblages in response to the contextual conditions. Macrofauna was also analysed, and this is more traditional, I guess, than the molecular analysis. And these results suggest that the impact of those platforms, as we can see now, is, is not huge. There are differences in the number of species as you move away from the northwest Hutton platform, but only towards the north, there is a relative decline in species diversity away from the platform, which might be surprising. On the south side, there is very little change in the number of species with distance from the platform. And in Miller, the results aren't probably exactly comparable because we were using grab samples from there, which uh, we were not able to complete on the, the north side of the platform, so there's limited data. However, there's no strong evidence that there is a particular change due to proximity of the platform, except in both cases, we had a slightly anomalous result at about 1,600 metres, where relative diversity was lower. And we're not sure 
what the reason for that is, but it may be impact from other things such as fisheries. In terms of biodiversity, using the Shannon Diversity Index, again, there was no clear evidence of an effect of the proximity of the platforms within the distances we measured. So you might consider this to be relatively good news. And we will be continuing this work with a cruise in the summer, which will be more to do with the offshore wind farms and in cooperation with Orsted, looking again at a suite of different environmental indicators around those platforms. We have to be thankful uh, for the Insight Programme for allowing us to do this work in the detail that we've been managing to do. But I wanted to say a little bit more about the idea of net gain and why we're pursuing this and why this is being funded, why we have this legislation and what is the science. Joanna and Stephen have, have gone through some of those uh, aspects in excellent detail. And we know that OSPAR at the moment, as Stephen mentioned, requires the removal of platforms unless there's derogation. But the fundamental question, is this a good thing? Is this removal the optimal approach to handling decommission? And it's interesting to note that different parts of the world come to different conclusions. And you also shouldn't consider that the bottom right-hand panel, this open sea, is without impact, because it isn't. We have the other aspects of the use of the environment, such as fisheries, to consider. So conceptually, for net gain, what we would like to see is an improvement, as Joanna was de uh, defining. Often we use a baseline for that. We look for an outcome where there is an increase in functionality, biodiversity, or some aspect of the environment we consider to be good, whether it's indicator species or a more um, inclusive metric. So we want to travel from a baseline condition to have a good outcome, or at least be neutral. Although now in the terms of net gain, we're often asking for more than simple neutrality, but certainly we don't want a reduction in the functionality and health of the system. This isn't as easy as it sounds because we have have a real problem. One of the problems is what do you take that comparison against? What are the baselines that are acceptable in terms of understanding these systems? If we look at change over time, then it depends very much on the stance we take, where we are starting from. And the further back we go in the North Sea, the bigger change we would see. So that decades, months and years are quite different in terms of how we analyse the current system and what we expect to see as good environmental status. And also a number of people mentioned, you know, hotspots and biodiversity or the biodiversity that platforms provide. But what spatial scale are we talking about and how important are those islands in the middle of the North Sea? So we're left with problems, both in determining what we mean by net grain and also the um, nature of what we compare it against. There is evidence in the literature that some of that recovery to pre um, disturbance conditions takes quite a long time. So we might be looking at decadal scales for expecting recovery. And that recovery can be different in terms of how we judge it, whether we're thinking about biodiversity or functionality of the system. With the microbial analysis, we might not see much change in the actual diversity, but quite a lot of change in the functionality. And we don't know that yet from the macrobenthus analysis. So one thing I just want to think about is in terms of our scientific knowledge and the policy that we demand from uh, governments and um, society. If we think back in time, then scientific knowledge 
and policy were probably, you know, in concert. But as the environmental challenges have increased, if we follow this green line in policy development, we're demanding more and more policy in order to protect ourselves in terms of what we're doing to the planet. And scientific knowledge is developing rapidly, but Stephen mentioned the gaps that we have. And I think recognizing that sometimes is critically important. We talk about the holistic paradigm, we talk about systems, and we talk about um, whole system development, and we're asked to deliver that. But the reality is that we're not actually at the stage of being able to fill in all of these gaps. So we sometimes have to make decisions on the basis of what we think is best, rather than a complete scientific portfolio of knowledge. We can't yet characterize entire ecosystems. So we can work towards the ecosystem and holistic approach, but we still just make measurements and analyze the diversity or the functionality they represent. So we have to allow a, fit, a reasonably flexible approach, sometimes taking a lead from the policy that drives the science and making these decisions because it makes intuitive sense. But we need to check and monitoring is not just for Christmas. We need to continue developing the science to help protect this approach. It is happening and we see a number of papers increasing with time looking at the ecology of offshore structures. And I'm sure we'll now see an increase in those papers dealing with net gain and how we adapt to that. But the challenge is huge. We have a lot of sites being opened for wind farm development, also new licenses for North Sea oil and gas. And we need to bring some of this thinking together to understand what we really want. In addition to that, we have the political storm, which is that we have the law that we uh, um, apply at the moment. But the, with Brexit, a lot of those bills will be reconsidered and there may be changes and a lot of work is required before all EU law is sunset in the United Kingdom. And so our colleagues in policy will also have their hands full. And so the scientific community is going to have to recognise that and work hard to provide the information that's needed in a timely and understandable fashion. And I'll just thank all of the FUECOMS team and for insight for running the seminar and this invitation and special thanks to Mel, Ben and Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you for your talk and for drawing together those parallels, quite importantly, between policy and science and creating the different sort of possibilities of how those can relate and connect to one another, um, uh, as well as that um, stressing the importance of monitoring, which I think is is um, essential for, for detecting the changes that we anticipate with any restoration work and net game work. So for the next wee bit, I will walk through some of the questions that, that you've posed. This is a question that's more about sort of climate change. As you were sort of looking into sort of like longer timeframes in your talk, David, a question from Beth Scott, just wondering the effects of climate change um, seem to be missing uh, in terms of our considerations with net gain at least within the confines of the webinar now. But, you know, more, more, more broadly speaking, would you be able to comment, David, on how predictable changes can, that are predictable in the environment can be brought into net gain protocols of the future? How predictable are all the changes? Yes, we'll, we'll see changes in, in species distribution. Um, but interestingly, we did an analysis of um, macbenthic data from Shetland, which uh, spans back to 1978, looking for 
changes in terms of things like thermal tolerance of the species and this with is Mike Burroughs and we didn't find it we would have predicted to find it so you know these predictions are, are not certain however environments will change and I guess the question is whether that functionality and change can be incorporated into our understanding of what's happening with offshore structures. And if you did that in isolation, if you only look at it, looked at the structures or you own, and you didn't compare with systems that are affected by climate change, we would get the wrong answers. So yes, we should be thinking in the long term about how climate change will affect those systems. But I think at the moment, the gaps in knowledge that we have are more fundamental than that. And so that will be something that we should consider. But I think all of the speakers today have, have pointed out that there are areas of work I think we'd need to concentrate on more. Th things like deciding on those metrics for net gain. Net gain on land is, is much easier. We, we can see the organisms, we can understand the systems. But talking to developers who are looking for net gain offshore is much tougher because how do you judge that net gain? And in fact, because the North Sea particularly is so exploited, you know, you might not be gaining as much as you should because you're using that baseline that is already a pretty low bar. So uh, that's what I can give you at the moment. Good to know. Thank you. I'd like to move a question to Stephen, please. Um, this is more about MPA, Stephen. And I know, you know, a lot of your work in the Dreams and Synthesis projects. Karen Millichip's question relates to sort of any consideration to do with impacts or benefits, but specifically within MPAs um, and, you know, the MPA network. But, but benefits and impacts for biodiversity when thinking about leaving structures in situ in the wider environment. Would you be able to comment about that? I can certainly have a go. We didn't specifically ask the question about MPAs in the DREAMS project, although in the two stakeholder workshops, which I talked about, we did ask specific questions about should we be incorporating net gain into highly protected marine areas and such, and the consensus was generally yes. We also asked things around the fact that offshore structures can be de facto um, artificial reefs, which many people were in support of. Um, and there's current arguments that we should place offshore structures such as offshore wind farms in MPAs. And again, from the workshops we did, there was a general consensus that might be a good thing. In terms of the environmental benefits for doing that, they might be similar, but the one that we've kind of focused in on is the fisheries kind of aspect in terms of that some of the environmental benefits might stop. You might have trawling might have to stop if it's co-locating with um, floating offshore wind farms or if it's, um, well, the legislation is different in different parts of the world. In the UK, currently, certain fisheries can go in and take things. But as we transition to different things like floating wind or other structures, there might be a complete ban on certain benefits like fisheries. Um, recreation and other services. So we are beginning to look at that. Um, it's quite complicated, as you imagine, um, but there is work beginning to think about how we can best optimise, I guess, different services between things like highly protected MPAs, normal MPAs, and co-locating structures within MPAs. So there's a lot of work going on. A lot of discussions in that area, as you know. Yes, yes, yes. It's all in flux at the moment still, isn't it? Um, thank you, Stephen. Like to ask Joe a question again, posed by Celestia, um, about, about if you could go back in time and advise the oil and gas uh, industry on their initial designs for infrastructure, um, uh, bearing in mind that this is infrastructure to be decommissioned one day, uh, what, what would the key inputs be 
What would your advice be to that industry to maximise environmental benefits? I think going back in time, one thing that didn't happen with oil and gas was that they could have thought about that area, that area where they are, that footprint and the exclusion zone that they occupy, use that in a, in a, in a beneficial way to support biodiversity by thinking carefully about additional either sediment layers or modules or structures that would enhance the biodiversity and I think that's kind of where we need to go now in the future you know we didn't we didn't have the opportunity to do it then but that's what we should be trying to do now it's a missed opportunity so that's my view on it anyway if only we could go back in time joe (laughs) i've got a question for charlotte now please it's a little bit about timelines um you might have more of an inside track on on the timelines for when marine net gain requirements are likely to be implemented from vincent oppit yeah i can give you uh, a little tiny bit more on that so just very briefly i'm going to say that um so terrestrially and down to mean low water biodiversity net gain will be mandatory from november this year as i said in terms of the timeline for marine it's at a much earlier stage the consultation on the kind of aims and principles of net gain went out last year and there's a, a summary of the responses to that that's already out um, and then DEFRA's response will be upcoming for that. In terms of the time frame, it really depends on where DEFRA go with this following their response to the consultation. And I think at that point, we would have more information. It's quite early stages and it does take a little bit of time to get these policies brought in, as well as kind of making sure that we're working with all the kind of stakeholders and parties, relevant parties that are going to be affected by kind of this this policy. We're working with DEFRA to kind of help them with any information and evidence they might need on that. It's also at this point might be worth just mentioning net gain as a term and biodiversity net gain as a term refers to, so biodiversity net gain refers to that specific policy that DEFRA has put in place. Obviously there isn't a marine net gain policy yet, so the definitions around that are a little more vague, but I see the term net gain being used quite broadly here to mean kind of any, so so on this call and many calls, any environmental or biodiversity or kind of nature improvement. And I think that's that's probably fine at the moment because the policy isn't isn't defined. But as that comes in, I guess that definition will be laid down. Thanks for that. Um, I think we are going in the right direction. And um, it's great to have all of our panellists today sharing their views um, in this topic. Um, Once again, I'd like to thank you for coming and thank all the speakers for some great talks and look forward to seeing you at the next one and it'll be on offshore wind. Thank you, everybody. See you again next time.